Good to be with you all tonight. Uh, can you hear me okay? Okay, great. I'm going to start our time together with a little thought experiment, and I uh, would like to request your participation. Uh, so let's say you are out in the country, you're going for a ride in the country, and as you are traveling down the road, all of a sudden, a deer dashes out in front of your car. What do you do? Swerve? All right, so you would, you would swerve to try to not hit the deer. What if I told you that as you reached to grab the steering wheel, uh, you found that it did not move, and therefore you could not swerve the car? What would you do then? What's that? What else? Hit the brakes. What if I told you that as you attempted to hit the brakes, you realized that you could not reach either the pedals or the emergency brake? And actually, your attempt to hit the brakes is actually what caused the car to slam right into the deer and kill everybody in the car. It's kind of a jarring way to start the beginning of a talk tonight, but um, anyone, has, anyone have a guess as to why you could not control the car and prevent the accident? So that's a good, that is a good theory and probably most likely in most situations. So yeah, she was saying that the momentum of the car is too, too high and therefore you couldn't stop the car in time. That is a good guess and also not correct. But thank you for offering that. Yeah. That's right. You are not in the driver's seat. Uh, in fact, you are a backseat passenger in the car. And that's why when you reach to turn the steering wheel, it would not turn because somebody else's hands were already gripping the wheel, and that's why you could not reach any of the brakes. And I thought I'd start with that scenario, that backseat driver scenario tonight, because I thought it was an apt metaphor for what we're going to be talking about, and that is the problem of over-responsibility. So what do I mean by over-responsibility? This is a working definition we can draw from. Over-responsibility is when we mistakenly assume responsibility that is either impossible or inappropriate for us to claim or fulfill. Now, the simplicity of that definition might make it seem as though it is easy to avoid over-responsibility, but I found that discerning the line between appropriate and inappropriate responsibility is actually a lot harder in reality. I think there are a number of factors that contribute to this, and here are a few that come to mind. Uh, number one, in this day and age, we are regularly confronted with so much excess, we actually have to work hard at limiting ourselves and remembering that we are limited people. So our awareness of the world's problems is always greater than our ability to address them. Our access to new advancements and information is always greater than our ability to utilize them. And lastly, the vast number of opportunities and options we have available can make it difficult to even make the smallest decision. So in other words, it takes work to realize that every new advantage requires more responsibility and more decisions about responsibility. So that's reason number one. Reason number two uh, is that in our culture, we have an overwhelmingly positive association with being responsible. I remember talking about this with a pastor friend of mine, and 
his first reaction when I said the word over-responsibility was, uh, how can somebody be over-responsible? I thought responsibility was always a good thing. And I'd say similarly, people are more likely to have a positive reaction for us being overly responsible compared to when we are under-responsible or negligent. So if we, if we are unsure what to do, it feels safer to cover our bases as opposed to dropping the ball. And then I'd say the third reason, uh, number three, is even our Christian convictions can mislead us into thinking that it's safer to be overly responsible compared to being negligent. And that's because we know that our responsibilities are actually an extension of our identity as God's stewards. They are given, us, given to us by God. Uh, when we enact them, when we carry them out, they reflect God to the world around us. Uh, and so the thought of neglecting our duties and, and disappointing God can feel terrifying. And yet I would argue that, un, that our understanding of what God expects of us is often skewed. And even more concerning, we are prone uh, to living our lives in such a way that we deny him the opportunity to challenge these oppressive expectations we have for ourselves. And that's why I'd argue that over-responsibility can be both dangerously deceptive and deceptively dangerous. I'd say it's akin to breathing carbon monoxide. Our human faculties alone are not capable of picking up its presence, and it's not typically until we start to experience the negative consequences of breathing it in that we start to detect that it's possibly present. And even then, it can be missed because these symptoms can be attributed to some other cause. Uh, just as we wouldn't likely assume carbon monoxide poisoning every time we felt fatigued or headachey, we typically attribute the symptoms of over-responsibility to other causes. And sadly, over time, it has the ability to not just destroy our bodies and our human relationships, but also our souls and our relationship with God. So that's why we're going to spend the beginning of our time here tonight uh, familiarizing ourselves with the symptoms and dynamics of overresponsibility, so that we can be better at, de at detecting when it's at play and how God can address it when we discover it. Uh, a quick disclaimer about this section. We're going to be covering a number of um, descriptions and symptoms. They're going to be way too many for you to remember, too many for you to write down. So I encourage you guys to just listen for one or two descriptions or reputations that I name uh, hold on to that, and I'm actually going to give you some time to reflect on where that shows up in your life, and I'm actually going to give you moments to reflect throughout our talk, because I, I do want you guys to take a moment, um, especially if you struggle with over-responsibility or you're in a position of holding responsibility, uh, life probably doesn't give you a lot of opportunities to slow down or reflect, so we're going to incorporate a few minutes at least of that in our time together tonight. All right, so over-responsibility can present itself through a wide range of symptoms. Uh, I thought we could start with how it feels. And again, I'm going to ask you guys to participate and get the cap off this pen. Uh, when you think of the term over-responsibility, what comes to mind? How does it feel? How does it present itself in your bodies, in your emotions? How does it show up? Heavy weight. I'm going to put, start putting these down. I'll just put heavy, abbreviate there. Yeah. Anxiety. Uh-huh. 
I'm not known for spelling well, and I also have dyslexia. So if anything comes up here and you're like, I don't know what that says, hopefully it'll become clearer over our time. But yeah, did you have a? Fatigue, yeah. Fatigue. What else? Fear. Fear. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Panic. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Exasperate. Stretched thin. Yeah. Let's see. Where do I want to put that? I like that stretch thin. Like butter over too much toast. Yeah. Distracted. Distracted. Yeah. Let me put that up here. Uh huh. What else? Yep. False sense of importance. Uh huh. Confused, yep, that's a good one. Like, what am I supposed to do? What am I doing? Um, yeah, there's lots of reasons for feeling that. Uh huh. Anger, yeah. You're not speaking for yourself, but for you know, other people who might struggle with that, right? I'm just kidding. Um, you'll realize by the end of this talk, I feel all these things regularly, so. Yeah, what else? Dread, yeah. That sense that we have to do something and we don't really want to do it or we don't even know if we can do it, but we have to do it anyway. Uh-huh. In control. In control. In control, right? Yeah. Maybe I'll take a couple more. Uh-huh. Paralysis. Paralysis. Ah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Shame. Mm-hmm. I'm like, ooh, where to put that one? Ah, put it over here. Yeah. Uh, isolated and lonely. Yeah. Let me put that. Thank you. You'll probably look at your outline and be like, I think there's a method to her madness in terms of where she's putting all this. Anything else? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Manipulative and blame shifting. Realizing I should be saying these things all back into the mic so that I can capture them in the recording. Um, blame shifting. All right. So I thought we'd start there. Um, you guys are already starting to capture just this variety of experiences, of feelings, of outcomes. Um, and let's see. Yeah, it was, it's funny how we, you guys put anger. Somebody said anger and then manipul manipulative and blame shifting, but... Typically, I would say that when I start talking to someone about over-responsibility, they do tend to talk more about either the anxious, uh, the pressure side, or the, the, the weary side. And even the title tonight that we went for captured that, tired and trying. Um, but yeah, ironically, um, maybe one of the more surprising one is anger. And we'll talk about that a lot tonight. But um, anger, anger is all about the issue of responsibility. Um, maybe the way that I would summarize it is um, we tend to feel it when we feel limited and somebody we think somebody else is not, but they're failing to do their responsibility, and that's 
when we start to feel angry with them. Um, so yeah, these are all really great, um, great words, and I will probably fill it in with a few more. Um, but as you can see from the outline in front of you, um, skip down, I, I put this somewhere different in your outline, but skip down to the bottom of the page. I've developed this diagram over the course of many years of working with over-responsible people uh, because I found that how we feel and react to our perceived responsibilities often corresponds with these um, current assessments of how we are doing with them, with our ability to fulfill them. So in short, the way I've organized this diagram is that we vacillate between I can, like I can do it, I can meet the needs, I can solve the problems, I can save the day, I am enough, and I can't. Uh, I cannot do it. I, there's too many obstacles, there's too many limitations, I am not enough. And I'd even break down these two into four distinct and overlapping modes. Uh, and they're, they're in your diagram here, but I'll include them here as well. Um, so this one I kind of categorize by I just. And this, this one's characterized by optimism and energy, as in I just need to do one more thing, or I just need to follow through, I just need to stay a little bit later. Um, but in this mode, you not only feel like you can, but you, you tend to feel good about it. You tend to feel more in control. You tend to be very, maybe you're distracted, but you're very focused. Um, typically, your, your focus is on the thing you need to accomplish. And you feel important. You feel like you are part of something bigger than yourself. You're investing your efforts in something important. So that's the first, this is probably the more confident version of I can. The less confident version, I like to call I must. And that's where you start to kind of get into that sense of, of dread, of anxiety, of, of panic, of a sense that things are not turning out the way that I thought, uh, and I'm not quite sure what to do about it. But there's still the sense that we are capable of doing it, and we have to do it. We can't let go of it. Um, so that's what I call the uh, I must mode. And then as we start to encounter more obstacles, um, discover that we are more limited than we thought, that's when we start to move into what I call the I can't mode. And kind of the, one of those phases I would like to call um, you must. And like I mentioned, you know, when we anger, and anger is probably the anger, frustrated, those are the words that I often associate with this mode, typically it highlights that we have given 110%. We've done everything we could do, maybe even more. Um, and at that point, when, when the job is not done, when we still can't do enough, we start to look around at other people and say, who, who else here shares responsibility that's not carrying their weight? And that's when we start to maybe be uh, judgmental, critical, uh, and it even moves into, you know, manipulation and blame shifting. We start might, might start giving uh, passive aggressive hints or even aggressive hints, uh, and trying to think and strategize how to get other people to respond so that they are carrying their weight. Uh, and the reason why I've, I've put isolated and lonely here, I think it actually characterizes the whole, the whole you know cycle. But this is probably where we start to feel it most acutely, is when we feel like we are in the game and other people are not, or other people are not helping us and contributing the way that we are. And then the second um, mode of I can't, the less confident mode again, is what I call no one will. 
You know, we've already been through like, I must, you must, but then we get to this place where we realize we don't have enough to make it work. We don't have enough to, fall, to solve the problem. And not only that, uh, the longer we try, the harder we push, the more heavy, the more fatigued we feel, the more stretched thin we feel, maybe even the more paralyzed we feel as we don't know what to do and where to turn next. Um, and I, I put shame here, and we'll talk about how actually shame and anxiety run all throughout uh, these modes or this cycle. But I think this is often where we feel it most. We feel this sense of hopelessness, of despair, of discouragement, uh, because we're not able to accomplish maybe what we thought we could accomplish. Uh, and we also feel that sense of loneliness or isolation, that we are carrying this burden on our own, and there is no one there to help us. There, no one there to help us. All right, so let me just give a disclaimer. We don't always progress continuously through this cycle every time, uh, but the purpose of this diagram is to show that there are a diverse number of ways that over-responsibility can present itself in our lives. Uh, and, and yet, at the same time, I'll, I'll try to help you see how they are all connected to the same core issue. Uh, I'm going to give you another window into identifying over-responsibility. As we function over-responsibly, over uh, habitually over time, these patterns get reinforced, and we start to develop uh, reputations or identities for ourselves. So I'm going to list off, again, it's going to be grouped into four different groups to kind of correspond with these modes, but I'm going to list, list off some groups of reputations or identities so again, listen for maybe one or two that you resonate with, or maybe that someone that you're helping um, that you see in them, that you see these patterns in them. So there is the hyperactive fixer, the type A overachiever, the never stopping workaholic, the never enough perfectionist, the, re the restless productivity addict, the persistent overcommitter, the overly accommodating people pleaser, the praise addict, the intensely empathetic bleeding heart, the ever-dependable rescuer, the knee-jerk advice giver, even when that advice is not solicited, uh, and the peacekeeping moderator. So that's group number one that I associate with the I just. Uh, with the I must, I associate the doomsday prophets, the, cat the catastrophe predictor, the high alert prepper, the obsessive puzzle solver, the protective bodyguard, or what I like to call the mood ring. It's that person who keeps tabs on everyone's emotional states as soon as they enter the room or as soon as the emotional temperature changes in the room. And then third group, the angry judge. And this includes the scrupulous critic, the persistent nag, the indignant record keeper, the person always saying, at least I haven't blank. And then the last group, the deflated escapist, the pessimistic cynic, the self-conscious hider, the evasive procrastinator, the hopeless conflict avoider, or the despondent quitter. I'm going to give you guys a couple minutes uh, to think about all these descriptor descriptors we've covered. Uh, and I want you to either take notes or just reflect for yourself, what do you resonate with? And maybe more importantly, where does that reaction, those emotions, show up in your life? Um, and I want you to start thinking about what's happening, what are the circumstances happening around those feelings and reactions. So go ahead and take a couple minutes.
hopefully they'll remember if it's All right, um, and I give you a couple more times to reflect, so we'll keep moving. Um, I thought I'd start with a fresh example, maybe even a lighthearted one, but um, of how I've seen myself move through this cycle, I hate to say it, but almost daily, um, especially when my kids walk through the door uh, home from school, and even though they are in first and second grade, uh, they, they seem to have a lot of homework that they need to do and um, sometimes it feels like a lot of homework for a first and second grader, but we try to be responsible with doing it. Both of my kids have pretty severe um, attention issues. My son is high functioning, but on the spectrum, uh, on the autism spectrum. So homework can be a real challenge. Uh, and yet every day when they walk in the door, especially if I'm available uh, and my husband's kind of looking to me for help, I think I jump right into this I just, and I start strategizing and I start moving. So I just need to um, get them to focus long enough to get through three-fourths of the assignment and then we can fudge the rest of it. I just need to keep saying their names over and over again uh, to get their attention. I, need, I just need to bribe them into like, this is the snack we're gonna have afterwards or this is the privilege that you will or won't have um, if you finish you know, homework or if you don't finish your homework. So I, you know, probably every day then they walk in the door, I start in that optimistic, energetic, let's get this done, we can do it fast, it's literally like one or two pages, we can do this. Uh, but very soon I start to move into that I must mode, uh, where I, I feel the sense of panic of, you know, why is it taking us so long to do this short assignment? Um, or some days you guys do really well in this exact assignment and today you can't focus, you're not interested, you're not motivated. Um, and that's where I start to feel panicky, a little bit like, okay, I got other things I need to do right now, um, I need to go back to work. Whatever it is, I start to feel this sense of, this is difficult, this is harder than I thought it was gonna be. And it's not long before I start to move into that you must mode. Uh, and it's typically, you know, you start to hear in my voice, I start to get a little more impatient and I start to say their name with a little bit more edge. Um, and again, I'm, I'm focused on what do I need to do to get their attention? What kind of threats, probably empty threats, uh, but threats nonetheless, do I need to like offer to get them to fall in line? And maybe, maybe I'll even vacillate uh, between these modes for a little while, but eventually I find myself sitting there on the floor, you know, their homework in hand, thinking I'm the only one motivated to do this. Nobody else is invested in this with me. Um, and maybe, that, maybe I will be there until I get a new idea or a new burst of energy or I get their attention for five seconds and then maybe I will jump back into the I just mode because at the end of the day, the bottom line is if I don't help them get their homework done, no one will. Um, and maybe I don't even think about the consequences. I, I think occasionally my husband and I will talk about you know, what's, gonna hap what's gonna happen if a first or second grader doesn't get their homework done. But then my mind starts going down, you know, spiraling downward into this, well, you know, maybe if they miss one assignment, it's not a big deal, but then they start to develop a habit. And if they start to develop a habit, it's gonna be harder for us to get them to do their homework. And then their grades are gonna suffer. And then their educational, you know, disposition or their, you know, disposition towards school is gonna change. So very quickly in the back of my mind, you know, I spiral downward and that keeps driving me forward to, I, I have to finish you know, this spelling, quizzing you on the spelling list or teaching you about fractions or whatever it might be. Um, 
but yeah, that's that's a very like lighthearted but common cycle. Um, and so I hope that you guys, as you listen tonight, start to identify where are the places where I, you know, maybe I hang out in the anxious space or in the angry space or in the kind of overactive space, but where am I picking up on this pressure that is actually much heavier and much more uh, unrelenting in my life? And what does that say about deeper issues in my heart? Before we get there, before we get to kind of the driving forces, I thought I'd, I'd take a couple minutes to talk about um, what kind of factors encourage us to take on this excessive responsibility in the first place. And as you probably can guess by now from my comments and from that example, um, even though I've spent a lot of years helping over-responsible people, the person I always need to help the most is myself. Uh, when I was later, when I was in late high school, I remember a scenario where a friend of mine was talking about his weekend plans, uh, and I think before he could even get all those plans out of his mouth, I launched into telling him my concerns about those plans and maybe some patterns that I was seeing about you know, his decisions and my concerns about his future. Uh, and his response was something like, uh, okay, thanks, Mom. And I think I took it as a compliment, but I don't think that's what he meant. Um, I think he meant it to be a hint, and where that really set in is when the friends who were overhearing uh, the conversation started to pick up that name and uh, use it in other contexts. And eventually, to everybody in my, my circle of friends, I became Mom. And so I thought a lot about, you know, what encouraged... Um, me to be this adultified teenager. Um, I was like, since we have time, I'll tell you one more story. Uh, just to give you another picture into what I was like in high school. Uh, there was a night where me and the girls from my youth group uh, decided to go and toilet paper uh, the house of one of the boys in our youth group. And, um, but let me, before you judge me, let me just say, this was after all the boys in the youth group the night before a choir trip decided to toilet paper all the girls' houses um, right before we all left town and left our parents to clean up the mess. Uh, so we had, to, we had to have some kind of plot or revenge. It would have been terrible to just let that go. So we, we chose one boy, uh, not all of them, not even two of them, but one boy. Uh, and I took it upon myself to even ask his mom in advance if it would be okay if we toilet papered his house. Uh, and then, and then when we showed up, um, I didn't even I didn't even have the courage to like throw one toilet paper roll. I ended up being the the sidewalk chalk girl who wrote you know silly messages on you know the driveway with sidewalk chalk. Um, and then at some point, the cops pull up, and what else? What would we do? But you know, scatter to the bushes to try to hide. Uh, but probably about 60 seconds passed before I realized, yeah, they're not they're not going to leave until they find us. Uh, and the fact that we have our trunks open with toilet paper sitting in them and there's no other way to get out of here means we're probably not getting out of here without being confronted by the cops. So uh, take a guess as to who the first person is to come out from behind the bushes and go to talk to the policeman. It was me. Yeah, thank you. Uh, good guess. Uh, and thankfully, they, you know, explained the whole situation. They, I think they said something like, why don't you just finish up quickly and get out of here? So um, <laughs> clearly, I was a pretty pitiable case that they wanted to support my, my toilet paper endeavors. So um, 
Anyway, so that gives you a picture into who I was. Um, and let me tell you a little bit about how I probably got there uh, and how we, how we tend to get there as people. So our, our natural disposition and our innate personalities and our strengths and our weaknesses uh, tend to play a role. For me personally, uh, I was always a very sensitive person. I always had a very sensitive conscience. And even from a very young age, I was an anxious rule follower. And at the same time, I was also fiercely independent. Um, one of my favorite words as a kid was myself. Uh, I always wanted to figure things out myself. So, you know, fit those two together. I, I had to follow the rules, but whenever there was a place where I could figure something out on my own, um, I chose to do it that way. And that bred a lot of independence um, in me, or that, that cultivated independence in me. And I was also very intensely empathetic toward other people and very focused on resolving other people's pains and problems. Like I was a magnet that was drawn to other people who were hurting, um, and I was quick to jump in and say, okay, what can we do about this? What resources do I have? What experience do I have? Who can I point you to? Uh, so that's, that's just kind of how I was. Uh, but I was also probably encouraged by my cultural and social upbringing. I grew up in the Midwest, and uh, if you study or you look up you know, the, the features of uh, Midwestern culture, you'll find that we value hard work, being responsible, and caring for our family and our community, being humble, and doing what is right. It's not that other people are not like that, but we just like to think of ourselves as more like that than anyone else. Um, we prioritize being friendly, uh, patient, and polite. We, we prioritize being the peacekeepers. Uh, we apologize frequently, apparently. Um, I thought it was the right amount, but apparently it's more than other people in other cultures. Uh, and we take a long time to say goodbye to people because we're afraid of leaving without adequately saying goodbye and therefore offending that person um, if we rush off too quickly. So my particular family, you know, carry these values, but, um, you know, the values of being dependable, being generous, uh, especially to others in need, being grateful for what we had, and going above and beyond what was expected was probably reinforced by my parents' upbringing. You see, both my, my, both my parents uh, grew up in families that did not have a lot of money. Uh, my mom was the first the first daughter of a family of 11, and um, because they had limited resources, she often fell into that role of being the second mom. And my dad was the son of a humble uh, Midwestern farmer who lived through, uh, my grandfather had lived through the Depression and the Dust Bowl, uh, and they worked really hard to put my three uncles through school so that they didn't have to become farmers like them. So, you know, all these things influence my independent, uh, empathetic, highly responsible for myself and for other people disposition. Uh, and really what I found over the course of my childhood is, is all these things reinforced each other. So the more I exhibited dependability and maturity, the more I was given praise, the more leadership opportunities I was given, and the more responsibility I was given, especially from adults in my life. Uh, my, my peers didn't always appreciate the way I was, as you've already heard. So, um, and then all these positive reinforcements started to make me think that I was not allowed to be weak and needy. And I increasingly internalized and claimed this identity of being a highly reliable and low maintenance person. I increasingly feared what would happen if others found out 
that deep, that I, I feared that if they found out that deep down I wasn't put together, that they would either reject me um, or not rely on me anymore. So I was influenced by all these positive reinforcing factors, uh, but I was also influenced by the negative experiences as well. See, my parents divorced when I was young, and at the same time, my dad moved out. Um, my mom went back to work and back to school, and that meant I saw a lot less of both of them and spent uh, a lot of time alone as a child or, or home alone with my sister. And even though I could rationalize you know, what was happening and hear what they said, that this was not my fault, um, of course, deep down, I was wondering is there something that I've done to contribute to this loneliness? And then when I was about nine years old, uh, there was a number of girls in my hometown that were abducted and later found dead. And all of them had been walking through their neighborhood either to a friend's house or home from school at the time that they had been kidnapped. And one day I was walking home from school and when I was about a few houses away uh, from my home, a car pulled up beside me, and the, the man in the driver's seat rolled the window down. Uh, he asked if I wanted to go for a ride, and he reached for me. Now, thankfully, I knew, I knew what to do. I screamed, and I ran, and he thankfully took off. Uh, but as soon as I arrived at my home uh, and went for the front door, I heard on the other side uh, our dog snarling and growling, and in retrospect, it was probably um, our golden retriever just playing alone with his toys. But when I heard that, all I could think is there's someone on the other side of this door ready to snatch me. So I sat down on the front porch uh, of our home and sobbed until my sister arrived a few minutes later. Um, and those few moments felt like a very long time. And in the following days, uh, as the police investigated, we found that we found from our neighbors who reported this to them that there was a man of similar um, appearance and a car of similar appearance that they had seen uh, waiting outside of our house during the school days. So what I gathered from this experience and from other scary and painful experiences in my childhood was this, uh, that we live in this scary world and when I need help or safety the most, I might find myself alone and vulnerable. So ultimately, my conclusion was that it is up to me. It was up to me to provide for and protect myself uh, and those that I loved or the things that I valued and make myself worthy of others' love, attention, and honor. And while I probably wouldn't have put it that way, um, at least explicitly, because it didn't sound Christian, I think I probably would have said uh, in my most honest moments that if I was suffering, it was probably because God was trying to teach me something and I just needed to figure out what I was doing wrong or what I needed to compensate for if there was something wrong with me in order to experience his blessing again. So I've, I've actually seen over the years for myself and from working with others that this, um, th these are the things that ultimately feed into these cycles of over-responsibility. Uh, and they're also the things that imprison us there, that keep us stuck there. It's these lies. It's these lies of I am alone. Let's see. You guys put this up here already. 
Um, I'm, I'm alone, I'm on my own. I think I wrote on your outline, it's up to me. And really, um, we are driven by the lies of shame and anxiety. That ultimately, we are the only ones who can look out for ourselves uh, and the people that we care about. And we have to prove that we are worthy. Um, we have to secure our relationships. We have to keep ourselves from being abandoned by others. And here's a, another observation that I've gathered over the years. Um, and it's something I call the logic um, of OCD. And it doesn't mean that we all have OCD, but we all have the same disposition deep down, which is recognizing that this world is a scary place and we are vulnerable um, and we don't have necessarily the resources to feel safe and loved it, you know, from day to day. And so we start to look around for what are the things that we can do, what are the things that we can control, what are the outcomes that we can measure that, that function as like a litmus test so that we can assess at any given moment how we're doing, how, if we're doing okay or not. Uh, and I think these things often populate those I just, I must, you must, no one will assessments. So for example, I just need to ace this project so my boss will consider me for that promotion and I will finally be on track to security and stability. Or I must keep our house in order or else my world will turn into chaos. Or you must stay focused and get ready when I'm trying to get us out the door for church or else we might be late again and develop a bad reputation, never make friends and to continue to feel isolated as a family. Or no one will no one will throw me a birthday party this year uh, and demonstrate that I am a valuable and memorable and loved person. So as you can probably gather from what we've covered so far, over-responsibility is not fundamentally an emotional, cognitive, or behavioral problem. It is fundamentally a spiritual and relational one. It lures us into the trap of fixating on what, on, on what we must accomplish while glossing over who actually has the power and the position to fulfill those things. I'm thankful that the more and more I have read scripture, the more I've gotten to know Christ, um, the more I've realized that scripture and Jesus are all about addressing this dynamic. Uh, from the beginning of scripture to the very end, uh, from the beginning where the first humans relinquished their true responsibility as God's dependent children and obedient student or obedient stewards to the culmination of Christ, who came not only to make a way for us to reclaim our place as God's needy children, but also spent his entire life reorienting and modeling for us what it looks like to live as children and to exercise our true responsibility and calling. So I'm going to look uh, at a couple passages in a minute, uh, but before I do that, I want to give you guys a couple more minutes again to reflect. You know, think about those situations where over-responsibility shows up. Think about the lies that often are behind, you know, behind your fears, behind the pressure, behind the anger, behind the discouragement. Uh, do you hear those lies of anxiety and shame? Do you hear that lie of it's up to me? Uh, take some moments to think about that.
right, I'm going to start again. And um, we're going to look in a moment. Uh, we're, going to, we're going to start with Luke chapter 10, uh, specifically the end of the chapter. Uh, and we're going to be reading about the story of Martha and Mary, uh, particularly the one where Jesus comes to Martha's home with his, with his party. Um, and I'm, I'm guessing that this passage is probably familiar to many of you. Uh, and it was familiar to me when I was a newer Christian. And it, it probably particularly stood out to me because I could identify with Martha's disposition, with her, her reaction. Um, I mean, just the word busy uh, with serving, you know, probably stood out to me immediately. But I actually did not have a really positive association with this passage for many years. Uh, and that's because I so identified with Martha's disposition that when I read how she reacted, I felt really embarrassed and awkward for her. Uh, so, you know, when I hear her accuse Jesus of not caring, um, of course, I know the rest of the story. I'm kind of like, Martha, uh, your priorities might be a little bit off, uh, and you're accusing the man that's about to raise your brother from the dead uh, and also dying so that your soul and the you know, souls of all mankind can be saved. So I, I don't know if we should be giving a hard time for not going along with your dinner plans. So that was my interpretation for many years. And I just did not like Martha. Um, I kind of, you know, my, my takeaway from the whole passage was don't be like Martha, especially when I thought about um, how Jesus responded and probably imported my own interpretation into that passage. Um, the way that I read it is that he took the opportunity to kind of show her her place, uh, to show her that the person that she was criticizing is actually going to be the one that he praises. So my takeaway was try to avoid those scenarios. Don't come to Jesus if my heart is not in the right place. Don't complain about frivolous things. But thankfully, uh, that interpretation changed, and it it partially changed because my life changed and my view of scripture changed. So in the following decade, uh, God brought me to the end of myself in many ways, uh, and he forced me to let go of or forced me to realize how little control I had in my life. And like I said, at the same time, I was reading scripture, I was reading the gospels, I was reading Jesus's word with fresh eyes. And so I'm actually going to read the passage and kind of fill in some of the gaps for you all as we read. Um, I'm going to share with you how I imagine the scene playing out. Now, obviously, the things that are not in Scripture, you can, you, you can take as my imagination, my interpretation. Um, but I'm kind of seeing Martha as an over-responsible person who is prone to get stuck in this cycle of over-responsibility that's driven by shame and anxiety. So... I'm actually going to encourage you guys to, if you have an outline there, flip it over. Um, think of this diagram as something that you are seeing from a bird's eye view at the top of Martha's home. Uh, I want you to imagine that the arrows are, you know, representing her movement um, around the room as she is busy serving. Uh, and I want you to imagine that at least for the first part of this passage, she is basically circling around Jesus. Her back is to him because she is so focused on what she needs to do. 
And obviously you will, you will hear when that changes in the story. So let's start here. Um, I'm starting verse 38 of Luke 10. Now as they were on their way, Jesus entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. So we don't know a great deal about Martha, but we can make some guesses uh, based on her circumstances. Uh, We can guess that she probably was not a wealthy person um, based on the fact that she and her sister were in charge of serving their guests. We know that she belonged to a group of people who were oppressed by their government and even sometimes oppressed by their own religious leaders. Uh, And she also lived in a culture that, that showed honor and shame to those based on how accurately they were fulfilling their role. And for a woman in this time, it was likely uh, the the typical role, the honorable role, was this place of hosting and serving as opposed to the role of being uh, a rabbi's pupil, of sitting at his feet, uh, which was a place that was reserved primarily for men at that time. So when Jesus and his party comes to town, Martha sees this need. Her friend, this person that she admires or loves, we don't know how developed their relationship was at the time, but she assumed this responsibility of hosting them and believed that she was up for the task. So she invited them in. I'm going to skip to verse 40 here. It says, Martha was distracted with much serving. I imagine that as soon as they came to town, as soon as she invited them in, she, she sprung into action Uh, noting and responding to the needs of her guests until she started to be concerned uh, that she could not keep up with the demand. So here she's moving from that I just to that I I must mode. And maybe she tried to strategize ways to multiply her efforts and keep on top of things and continue to hustle and bustle. But eventually she would begin to panic because it was not enough. She was not enough. Verse 39, we're going back a verse here. And then uh, she had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. I can imagine that Martha is scanning the room and then she notices her sister sitting there. And instead of helping, she is sitting and listening at Jesus' feet. Um, and, And not only not helping, but she is sitting in a place that could bring shame upon their family. And I can just imagine, maybe not immediately, but over time, she starts to become hot with irritation. Uh, If I were in in her shoes, I probably would have started to strategize, okay, how do I get uh, Mary's attention without attracting a lot of attention to myself? Um, Maybe I would drop some hints. Maybe I would give her some ugly stares. Maybe I'd start whispering, Martha, get over, or Mary, get over here. Uh, But what we know is that, that Mary did not budge. Mary did not get up to help her sister. Verse 41, and then she went up to Jesus and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. Her resentment had reached a boiling point, and seeing that her sister wasn't going to respond to her, she then turned her frustration towards Jesus and fired her demands at him instead. And here's, here's the part of the passage that I misunderstood before, that I got wrong, is that when she turned to Jesus, that was the first time she was moving in the right direction. She was a stepping away from her self-reliance, and she was going from having her back to Jesus 
to turning toward him. And I would argue that underneath her anger and um, underneath her accusations was this expectation that he would at least share some responsibility for what was happening. And she took the risk because she believed going to him would provide a better outcome than what she was already doing. Now, did her words demonstrate that she was still afraid and insecure, uh, in addition to being confused about what she expected of herself and of Jesus? I think we can safely assume yes, but she did, she actually did the, the best thing possible to address that insecurity and that confusion. She turned and she communicated something about what she was feeling and thinking to him, and that poised her for his response. And here's how Jesus responded to her. Verse 41, the Lord answered to her, Martha, Martha. Amidst all the things that were probably pulling at her attention in that moment, he is trying to get her attention. Uh, he's inviting her to focus her eyes and her attention on him. And he repeats her name twice as if to say, pause, listen, I have something important to say. And it wasn't just you know, repetitive language to get her attention. It was personal language. He was using her name. And it's as if he was saying to her, I know you. I see you. I care about you. And I think he was inviting her to trust that whatever he had to say next was trustworthy and good. He said, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. We hear him saying, I know you are struggling and your burdens feel impossible, and that's because they are. And the good news is that I don't expect these things of you. God will never ask you to do the impossible or make it impossible for you to figure out what you need to do or how to do it. His expectations are simple and doable. And then he says, Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. Now, let me just take a step back and say, share with you how I've interpreted this line and how many Christians have interpreted this line according to what I've heard. Um, often I hear us using this passage as a way of comparing two ways of living. Um, but unfortunately, this comparison has often led us to either feel ashamed for being um, you know, empathetic and prone to, to gravitate toward responsibility or to help other people and not be as naturally pious, um, or it's, it's made us feel guilty for not prioritizing our quiet times. But I don't actually think that that's what this passage is primarily about. I think Jesus is ministering to Martha and speaking right into the fears and the insecurities of her soul. I hear him saying to her, do you see that person over there who either looks like she's getting away with laziness or risking exposing your family to shame? He's inviting her. He's saying, you can be that lazy and risky person. You can let go. And I promise you that I will not allow, I will not allow shame to befall you, just as I promised that to your sister. Watch me, watch how I interact with her, and I will prove it to you. I argue that Jesus' response was less of a confrontation and about comparison and more about an invitation and a promise that almost seems to be too good to be true for Martha. 
and probably often seems too good to be true for us. Jesus loved Martha. We know that, um, not just from this passage, but from other passages. And he wanted to see his beloved friend and sister freed from the bondage of being her own savior or the savior of others and enter into the joy and freedom of being God's child. Now, uh, some of you might hear that, or at least whenever I hear this and still wrestle with this, sometimes I think, yeah, but it's Jesus. It was different for him. He doesn't struggle the way I struggle. He, uh, he knew his path. He knew his calling. Uh, he didn't struggle with the overwhelm and the confusion that I encounter on a day-to-day life. Uh, but what I've what I found to be true, the more I read his story, the more I realize that the temptation over responsibility was probably present from the beginning of his life to the very end. Now think for a minute about his experience of temptation in the desert. There he was, uh, vulnerable, uh, hungry, and alone, and preparing to face the even more vulnerable and lonely road to the cross. And Satan whispered again and again to him, it's up to you. You can provide for your needs. You can make yourself safe. You, uh, you can attain honor and glory now. You just have to fill in the blank. And in contrast to Adam and Eve, when confronted with these temptations, Jesus responded again and again, that's not my job. Or maybe the more comical version that I like to think of, you seem to be confusing me with somebody else. And at the temptation of the cross, when he was faced with the most terrifying and lonely moment in history, he refused to take on the responsibility of rescuing himself. He trusted and followed his father into his worst nightmare, and his father made that nightmare come untrue. I'm here to say that Jesus gets it. He gets every minute of it. He's been tested and tempted in every way we have been. And so therefore, he knows how to help us when we feel vulnerable, and he is prepared and ready to greet us, to invite us, and to instruct us to live like children and resist this temptation. I've often associated uh, this passage with Martha um, with the passage from Matthew 11, the really familiar passage, um, because again, Jesus is inviting the burdened, uh, those who are feeling the weight of impossible yokes to come to him and exchange that impossible burden of relying on ourselves and being our own God for being children who are vulnerable and needy and awaiting direction and guidance for doing it. I think what I'm going to do is read through this passage, um, and before I unpack it uh, and break it down into some action items for you guys to take away with you. I want you guys to take another moment to reflect and hear Jesus' words to us. Uh, These words of invitation, these words of promise, these too-good-to-be-true words that come from him. And I want you to just note or reflect on what you need from these words. What What words do you need to take home with you tonight? So let me read Matthew 11. Um, I'm actually going to start in verse 25 and read all the way to the end through verse 30. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord in heaven, 
Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little, anyone to fill in the blank? Children. Yes, Father, for it was, your, it was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father. Um, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone whom the Son has chosen to reveal him. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Or I saw this today from the New English translation. For my yoke is easy to bear and my load is not hard to carry. Let me give you a couple more minutes to take these words in. We are in our last, our last section, and the part of me wants to just leave you here with those words to reflect on. Um, I imagine some of you, at least, struggle with over-responsibility and want something to do uh, with these things. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to keep it somewhat simple, um, but, but here are the four things I want you to draw from this Matthew 11 passage. And the, and the four things I want you to think about as you discover, as you detect over-responsibility in yourself. So number one, uh, turn. We need to turn. Uh, we want, you need to do the, the thing that Martha did that, that broke the cycle of responsibility. As opposed to continuing along our way, on our own, we need to turn to Jesus. And, and here's the thing, and you'll see this from the diagram um, in your outline there, you'll see an arrow coming from any section. And the point of that is just to give you a visual of there is no bad time to come. It doesn't matter if we are in the energetic and optimistic phase and maybe we're struggling with um, fearing that approaching Jesus will slow our momentum or get in our way or we feel a sense of impatience. That is the greatest time to come. Or the I must phase when we feel anxious but also feel, also feel like if we step away from our responsibilities, we're going to lose time, um, that it's risky, that is the best time to come. Or when we are angry, just like Martha, um, we might feel embarrassed. We might know deep down there's something wrong with us if we're angry with Jesus. But since anger is such a loud emotion, what's lovely about it is that it gets our attention. Uh, maybe it gets other people's attention first, um, so maybe we ask our loved ones, you know, when I come across as angry, maybe this is a good time for you to ask a reflection question. But when we feel that anger and frustration, that things are not going the way we thought, uh, the others are not cooperating, it is a good time. It is the best time to come. 
or when we are in the no one will, despondent, despairing, discouraged mode, when we are wondering if there's something wrong with us, when we're wondering what, where we've gotten it wrong, uh, when we even are wrestling with, uh, you know, is there something shameful and, and broken about us that we can't make our lives work, that is the best time to come to Jesus. So let me just say, um, if you want to walk out right now, and that's your only takeaway, that would be good enough. Uh, just remember to turn. Whatever state you're in, come in whatever state you're in. Come often. Um, if it helps you to think about it, get good at bothering Jesus and bringing him into your life, especially if you are prone to leave him out of your plans, your anxieties, your frustrations, and your discouragement. And let me just confess this to you. This is the hardest thing for me. If detecting my over-responsibility is difficult, I would say that this is even harder for me. So if it's hard for you, you have at least one companion. I'm pretty sure more than that. Um, but I encourage you, I exhort you to, to find ways to jump in with Jesus and to bring him into whatever moment you are in and say, help me. And that's what we hear from that, that Matthew 11 passage. He says, come, come, I see where you're at, and I'm inviting you to come. All right, number two, and actually I, I reversed this on your outline, so I'm going to switch it up a bit. I'm going to jump from return down to yearn. Um, don't laugh at me that all these rhyme, but um, we have turn, yearn, return, and learn. Um, we're going to jump down to yearn. And what I mean by yearn is God wants us to bring our hearts to him. He wants us to come ready to wrestle, wrestle with what we expected, what we wanted, what we feel like we need, and how things are turning out. Uh, so he wants us to come like Martha. He wants us to express all those things to him because he's actually the best place for us to work those things out. And um, so a couple sub-thoughts for what does it mean to yearn. I, I often say it means sharing candidly, asking freely, grieving, and hoping. And let me just, since we're short on time, I'm actually going to jump down to um, talking about grief because it's not necessarily something we associate with over-responsibility, and yet it's often a missing factor from the lives of people who are over-responsible. Um, and I'll just touch briefly on another passage that I really used to struggle with, and that's the passage, the other Martha passage, um, that talks about Lazarus's death and Jesus's, you know, raising him from the dead. Uh, if you open to that passage, you'll notice at the very top uh, something about Jesus loving this family. And so, you know, if you're an over-responsible person, you'd say he would rush to their aid. Uh, but instead, the passage says something like he delayed in coming when Lazarus was sick and dying. So, of course, as like a first responder, I read that at some point, um, not at a young age, but at a later point, I was like, what the heck? Like, that doesn't make any sense. If you love somebody when they need you, especially when it's dire, you come as fast as possible. So that was my first clue. There was something, something funny going on in this passage. Um, but probably what felt even more visceral to me is what Jesus did when he arrived on the scene. Instead of heading right in there, um, the moment he arrived to raise Lazarus, 
uh, the thing that, that stood out to me is that he actually not only engaged with Lazarus' sisters and their questions, but he stopped and wept with Mary. And that just, that, that can baffle us as uh, limited and over-responsible people because we think if you have the resources to save your dear friend, why wouldn't you just go right to that? Let's, let's shortcut the grief. Let's make, you know, let's solve the problem. Um, let's bring, you know, resolution to this problem. And yet Jesus shows us in that story that there's something really valuable and human and good about us grieving what is broken. Um, so for any of you who struggle with that, when you feel stuck in this, you know, active I just mode or in this anxious I must mode or in this frustrated you must mode or in the despairing no one will mode, um, just remember that in all of those places you are facing and dealing with the fact that our world is broken, uh, you are broken, the people you love are broken, and that's worthy of you grieving. And I actually think that that grief is what we need um, because it's what we need to actually generate good and godly hope um, and expectations for, for what God is going to do and how we fit into those plans. Um, because grieving, grieving is facing the reality of how things are and facing the reality of our limitations. Um, and it's only when we do that that we actually create a space for there to be hope. Um, and not just, not just hope from God, but hope about the things that we really long for. Um, I always think about C.S. Lewis's quote um, on our desires when I think about this. He says, it, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. I hear that as we have these litmus tests of if I could just have this, if I could just do this, or accomplish that, or gain this person's love, I would be happy. But often, we are far too easily pleased when God is offering us hope in something so much deeper and that resonates with who we were made to be and who God is making us to be. So let me just encourage you that when you are faced with the brokenness of a situation, um, even if it's not your knee-jerk reaction, it may be the very place when God is creating a space for you to slow down and grieve so that you can actually hope um, and so that your requests before God, so that your the, the voicing of your prayers and the requests that you make of him are more and more aligned with what he's already planning to do in your life. We're going to jump to number three, uh, return. And you probably already have a guess as to what I mean by this. Um, and really, I mean, we need to return God's job to him. And that's what this Matthew passage is really about. It's about trading in an impossible yoke for a yoke that, that we were meant to carry as God's children. And often people ask me, okay, what, is that, what does that look like? What does it look like for us to start to discern our responsibilities, our calling? And I say sometimes it's, it's often easiest to start with the things that we can't do. And sometimes it's good for us to look at whatever we're facing. So think about the scenarios that you've written down already tonight. 
Uh, I want you to look at those scenarios and say, where am I trying to function as God here? Um, and where is God actually trying to show me that, that I am not all-knowing, um, that I am not, um, I can't be in more than one place at one time. Um, I don't have the power to actually heal or provide what is needed for there to be wholeness. Um, so I say, when we're trying to discern what this, what this easy yoke um, consists of, often we want to start with saying, okay, what, what can't I do and what do I need to let go of? What are the jobs I need to hand back to God? And that's actually going to hand, that's going to pave the way for what we can do. Um, and actually, I think with that, I'm going to skip to the last point um, about learning. Because I would say that learning... I would say that being a steward of God is a learning process. It's not even like a job description. It'd be very nice uh, if God just wrote up like a one-page job description for what we're supposed to do every day or every season of life. But what I found is being his steward, being his child, is a learning process. And that means often we are just faced with what we can't do today, uh, either because we are not God or because God hasn't given us that power. or because we are faced with what we can do. What do we have access to? Who's actually asking for our advice? Um, What power, what resources do we have at our disposal? And I would say that um, what what Jesus is asking in this Matthew 11 passage is not just to come once or twice, but to come continuously so that we can not only do this exchange of yokes, but so that we can continuously learn from him what does it mean to be a child? I will reference real quick a passage from Matthew 6. And this is another well-known passage um, where Jesus talks about how we don't need to be anxious about our lives, about what we will eat or what we will drink, because our Heavenly Father knows that we need them. And we, our job, again, is to seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and these things will be added to you. And I love this last passage, even though it sounds a little bit bleak. um, To me, it frames my responsibilities on a daily basis so well. He says, therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. So I think when I hear that, I I think that Jesus is saying to us, I know that you can't predict tomorrow. I I know that you don't know what the needs or the provisions are going to be. So I'm going to free you from focusing on tomorrow and actually focusing on today. And as we do that, I think we, we become engaged, more actively engaged in this learning process that he brings us through. So that means that um, we not only observe what we can't do, but what we can do, and then we make choices. And we weigh, you know, we count the costs, as Jesus would say. We make choices based on what the risks are, um, And then the next day, we come back to Jesus again and say, okay, what happened? How did that turn out? How did that person react? Um, How did that decision to either work later into the night or to end work early, how did that play out? Um, Our responsibility is to be in this role and this place of being an ongoing student as opposed to somebody who has figured it out um, and learned the ropes and already knows what to do apart from Jesus's help. I'm going to make one more comment um, 
because we're at the end of our time. Um, let me just say that, well, I, I can't even call myself a recovering over-responsibility addict. I am an active and act, actively struggling, actively recovering responsibility addict. Um, and I myself am always looking for a way to overcome and to, to come out of over-responsibility. Um, and I think what I've found is that's, not only is that not possible, but that's not God's way for me. Um, this, these things that I'm describing are not meant to be means to the end of freedom. They actually are the ends themselves. This kind of engagement with God where we are coming to him um, no matter where we are, where we are expressing our hearts to him, where we are sharing our needs and our requests and our grief and our hope with him, and where we are you know, giving back to him the things that we can't do and learning from him the things that we can do, that is what it means to live as his child. That's what it means to live as his creature, as his dependent creature. So let me just encourage you that if you struggle or where you struggle with over-responsibility, I should probably say, um, this process is not going to end before we go to be with Jesus. And that's actually good. And, and I'll, I'll throw in one more suggestion, and that's that you can't, do, you can't do this process alone. That really, just as we're supposed to turn toward God, we need to be turning toward each other. We need to be expressing where we're struggling. We need to be um, wrestling out where, where we are incapable but blind to that um, and where we are capable and what choices we would like to make and what we're learning from them. Those are all things that we need to be doing with our brothers and sister. Um, so when people have asked me, you know, what is the one thing that you would recommend uh, continuing to do? What's the one resource that you would recommend coming back to? Typically, it's not just, a, you know, in addition to these passages, I'd say it's not necessarily a book or a program uh, or a sermon. Typically, it's people. It's people who know us better and better the way that Jesus knew Martha and knew the people in the crowd who were struggling. Uh, and it's giving people license to remind us um, of who we are and what God has to promise us. So that's my, my closing encouragement to you all. And Raymond, should, we, should I close in prayer or should you can we pray. do Q&A first? Okay. Yeah. Father, um, this world uh, is a lot and life is a lot. And um, I feel that. Uh, when I'm aware of it, I feel that every moment. And I imagine people are here because they feel uh, the weight of the world on their shoulders or they feel that it's resting in their hands. And so I pray that you tonight uh, would catch their attention, that you would, you would invite them to turn, no matter what distorted thinking or um, silly or serious emotions they are wrestling with. Lord, I, I pray that you would invite them to yourself and, and promise them that you have something better for them than anything that they could accomplish or discover uh, on their own apart from you. And Lord, I, I just pray that you would help us today and in the coming days to become children, that you would help us grow up into children, and um, that there would be a day when, that we could look forward to the day when we will be fully formed children who, who rest in that place and find joy in that place as we are face to face with you and in communion with each other 
Um, and, there, and there's no more temptation. There's no more sorrow, and there's no more temptation to live apart from you. So we pray that that day would come quickly, and we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Um, what I'd like to do is we have time for like two, maybe three questions. So Chris, if you're out there, if you'll tell them downstairs, uh, these need to be questions that are useful for the whole room. So if it's more personal, find her afterwards. Uh, she'd love to have a few minutes to be able to speak with you. But there is a timestamp on that because I am sending her to dinner. So if you feel like, hey, I'll just wait till the line's short, you might miss out. So make sure you find her afterwards. Uh, so go ahead and move to the microphone if you have a question useful for the whole room question first maybe would you just lean into the last thing you said i'm thinking of our conversations uh one of the things that was helpful is that uh i felt a, a sense of shame like i just couldn't tell people that i had areas of being tired exhausted weakness um i'm thinking of people here who might say okay hey, i want to have a relationship like that with people mm -hmm. but maybe they really want people to speak at them but they haven't really created a bit of a an environment where people can speak to them what kinds of things can they start to say at first? So, you know, some of the examples of that maybe they need to lean in toward to be able to, to create the space where people can actually be helpful to them the way that they want, but haven't really provided them opportunity to be helpful to them. Yeah. You know, what's, um, what's just so lovely about scripture, about what Jesus does is he, he's like, I'm gonna give you guys the words and as you say them to each other, you're actually, you know, he's, he's actually giving us the words to create that space. Um, often it's just we need to identify ourselves in it. Um, that, that's what I found myself, you know, found with myself. It's not so much that um, those words are not in Scripture. It's that I, I am kind of like, well, I don't know um, if I should be feeling that way, or I don't know if those words are for me right now. Or often it's, I think people you know, who have worse circumstances than I do, um, those words are for them. So the words of the Psalms are the words that Jesus says, um, you know, to these people who are coming, who are weary and heavy. Um, but I would say that that's, the first thing we can do is embrace that that is what God says about us. Um, and those are the words we can say to each other. We can say, I'm feeling heavy. Um, and I think, I mean, I think this is where um, God does have to help us. And sometimes we have to, I'll say this, and obviously as a counselor, I'm, it's probably cheating because I get to do this with people all the time, but sometimes we need to find uh, an older, wiser person to help us sort through how to pursue those relationships, um, either to kind of train us in the process of feeling out other people's openness, maturity, ability to you know, engage over those things. Um, or you know, sometimes we engage in the more vulnerable, uh, painful, scary, the bigger questions we have, with a safer person, whether again, counselor or more mature person. Um, and then from there, it, it doesn't feel so risky to share those things with peers. Uh, and that way we can kind of feel out, okay, who else wants to have a conversation about this? Who else um, you know, is ready to talk about these kinds of struggles? And with that, I would say, I know that we often like use prayer as a crutch um, in a not helpful way. Um, but I'd say that this is a good time to say, you know. We can use prayer as a crutch, as a way of saying, like, not only am I struggling with this, but I genuinely need people to pray for me. Um, so I think in some ways confessing these tendencies um, is a way of both kind of admitting them and inviting other people to admit them. Um, and it is a genuine place to say, like, unless God helps me with this, I'm not really going to be able to get anywhere. Um, so will you partner with God? Will you partner with me as I grow in this way? 
Yeah. Simple. Mark. Uh, yeah, thanks. If you so have much a question, go ahead and move to the microphone. Or you'll there we go. Yeah, thank you so much for uh, for your talk tonight. It was awesome. Um, just wondering, um, how could one deal with being overly responsible when the over responsibility is the result of loved ones or maybe an employer's expectations being mm -hmm. misaligned or unrealistic? Um, how would you counsel somebody to communicate maybe those concerns, or what could be done to? actionably deal, deal with this? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, and again, if I, if I fall back on the like, go talk to a counselor thing, it's maybe give me a little bit of a pass because I am a counselor, but um, I would say that whenever you're in a position where someone of more power than you, um, when, you're, when you're struggling with their excessive expectations, it is a place where typically you do need help uh, walking kind of that fine line of being respectful. Um, I, I'd even, I, I'll say, I use the phrase managing up a lot in counseling, um, of this idea of like, I'm not trying to tell you how to do your job, and nor am I trying to say like, I can do whatever you want. Um, it's this way of, you know, crafting and um, being mindful and thoughtful with this particular person um, how do I try to communicate to them that I want to do the job, I want to do it well, and I actually need their help? And part of that is I need them to understand what's going on in my experience, um, and I need their help trying to figure out how to, uh, for lack of a better way of saying it, prioritize things. Um, so really, like managers, parents, things like that, they're meant to be invested, in God's design, they're meant to be invested enough that if somebody can't do the job, that the the person in leadership is supposed to be able to like understand why and help them prioritize. Um, that's sadly not what happens, you know, in our lives for lots of reasons. So I would probably encourage that person find someone who can help you um, create like a map, you know, create a plan for engaging that person. Um, that that I would I would say actually builds or communicates healthy submission. It's basically saying like. I recognize your position over me, um, and I, I really do want to do a good job for you, and I need your help. Like, I really want you to help me um, and use your wisdom to guide how I, I carry out this job. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. Catherine. Um, You're so blowing right now, Catherine. Closer to the mic. Okay. Um, so I feel like with this over-responsibility thing, it can really come to be like an identity like, you know, I'm the person who's always, like, fixing the problem mm -hmm. or, like, you know, very in control or, you know, just kind of, like, I have it all together. And so as you try to shift towards letting go of that, and especially what you said about moving into, like, grieving and hoping, mm -hmm. it really kind of changed. It feels like an identity change with, like, within your relationships. Mm -hmm. And so... Would you have like any advice for how do you navigate those waters? Like as people who've always related to you as like calm, collected, fixes it all, and all of a sudden like this person's like just really changing, like maybe like being more emotional or like things like that. Like especially when it's like the relationship all of a sudden changes and it just feels really murky. Yeah. I'm like, well, give me a call and then we'll I'll have no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> And, and, may, and that, that's what's so challenging. We don't live in a vacuum, right? We, we live in relationships where we develop these dances. Um, and I, I'll, just, I'll just say for firsthand, I've had to do a lot of that um, risky, I'll say the hard work of figuring out how I wanted to change my steps. Um, 
gauging what the outcomes of that, you know, what, the, what are the risks, what are the likely outcomes of that, um, and, and helping me, or I've had to ask other people to help me figure out what is, um, what is a path, what is a progression that, that actually you know, makes sense, as opposed to just like overnight, like I'm, I quit, I'm not gonna be a mom anymore, I'm not gonna be a husband, I'm not gonna do anything, you know. That feels, that feels um, appealing, I will say, um, because that black and white approach feels a lot more clear and seems to promise that we won't kind of fall back into those patterns. Um, but again, I think we typically need faithful help saying, okay, every day we're gonna, t we're gonna change up the dance just a little bit. Um, and yeah, I, th I think we do need wise people around us to help us say, okay, what does it mean? Like as a mom, for example, um, what does it mean to be a present, responsible, responsive parent? And also acknowledging that I'm not everything to my children. Um, there's gonna be a lot of ways in which I can't be, you know, I, I'd say this about my own parents. So I shared, you know, this, my own backstory. I don't think of that story as my parents failed and they should have done more. I, I think of it as living in a broken world meant, um, means that we all experience those dynamics where, um, where we just can't do enough. And so, yeah, again, I hate kind of coming back to like, find a wise friend to help you figure that out. But I will, I will just validate that that process um, needs to be step by step and, and, and recognize that whenever you make a move, it's gonna have an impact. Um, you hope in the long run it's going to be an, a positive impact, but change is hard, not just for us, but for people around us. Um, and so it's even better if we have a way of trying to explain to people, you know, I'm not, I'm leaving the dishes alone really because I respect you. And I'm, you know, I'm talking to my parent or my husband, not my kids now. Um, I'd, I'd say something like, I'm leaving this, you know, mess that you made that I would normally clean up because... I feel like it's disrespectful for me to always kind of, kind of come up behind you and try to do this for you. And I'm sorry for that. And I'm going to try to do better. And he, my husband might be like, well, I kind of liked when you did the dishes. But oh, thanks for the compliment. Thank you for trying to respect me. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a process. And sometimes people are not ready for it. So we really do need help and support. In your experience, just maybe a final question. How much of this is self-imposed? And how much is actual other people's expectations of us? Because I'm even thinking of some yeah. of the things where it's like, mm -hmm. I felt that I, I had a lot of things like, well, nobody was actually telling me any of the things that yeah. I thought. So I'm just assuming like, oh, everybody thinks this, 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 this. Yeah. And it's really, I think this, 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 this. Yes, that's right. Um, yeah, it's a, chicken, it's a chicken or the egg, I'd say. I, I'd say that we live in a world, you know, like I said, our ancestors, you know, Adam and Eve, started this in motion by saying this, you know, this was the way that they were gonna live, and that had consequences. You know, they, they ended up not living uh, in God's presence in the garden anymore. So it's, it's probably hard, we can't, even dissect, we can't even separate ourselves from the rest of humanity, the rest of history. We're all part of this system, and really part of this story, uh, where this is just how God's people struggle. Um, and yet, it is at times it's going to be helpful for us to say, um, it doesn't matter if anyone is ever enforcing this upon me. I'm going to struggle with these same, you know, these same, same temptations. And it's, in, in that case, it's actually helpful to be like, yeah, well, Jesus was alone out in the desert, and he was um, the, he was a perfect human being, and yet he was still confronted with the same lies of, you know, this is up to you. You need to take matters into your own hands. And so, I think it's validating to know that yes. We respond to it, 
um, and that creates reinforcing cycles, and yet those temptations are going to be there no matter what. Would you help me thank Laura for her time with us? Thank you.